Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Professor Genevieve Bell, a genuine star from the world of technology. And if you'll excuse me a fanboy moment, a great career, which we will go through in just a moment. And it's not just for what's been accomplished professionally, but I heard a great podcast the other day can't quite remember what the lady's name was, but you've been a great mentor to people as well. And I want to explore that as well. So we'll come to that. But as many of you will know about Genevieve's distinguished career... A Canberra local, she studied anthropology at uh, Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania before carrying on or earning a PhD in cultural anthropology from the Stanford University, graduated with that in the late 1990s. A career in academia beckoned, but a chance meeting in a bar in Silicon Valley changed all that, and she took a path into the corporate world, where she worked and has worked, and I did believe still works with Intel, the chip manufacturer. For over 20 years, Genevieve held roles in research, user experience, corporate sensing, insights, all sorts of things. And interestingly, also back in between 2008, 2010, she became the thinker in residence for the South Australian government, where she helped them to think about just exactly what the internet meant for South Australia and how they could activate, you know, the whole state and get them online. So, Now, while Genevieve retains this role at Intel, she has also last year been appointed um, to the Australian National University, where she is now the head of the Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute. The goal of the institute is to build a new applied science around the work of artificial intelligence, data and technology, and all of that rolled up and its impact on humanity. So she's going to be extremely busy, but she joins me now. And Genevieve, thanks very much for joining me in transition. <laughs> David, it's my pleasure to be here. Gosh, that just I sound exhausted just listening to that. It's really quite worrying. <laughs> but do you feel exhausted? Because you, it's, it's, it's a big job. It's a big life. It's a big challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm always grateful to be fueled by Australian coffee and a kind of hapless optimism. So, you know, I look at all of that and think, well, that explains why I'm tired when I go to bed. But yeah, gosh, that's a lot to do. Yeah. Well, it's been a great career. And listen, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. But I'm I'm fascinated. Let's go right back to first principles and where it all began here in Canberra. But also, you were the daughter of, a, of an anthropologist, which set you off on many great adventures. And you d- did spend a lot of time as a young person in Indigenous community, in Indigenous communities with your mother looking around. What what did you take from that and what influence did that have on you mm. in the subsequent path that you took? No, listen, David, those are really good questions, right? And I'm always acutely aware that, you know, I am and I think many of us are framed by the things that happened to us when we were kids, right? So my mum was a cultural anthropologist. Her name's Diane Bell. She's these days a distinguished professor emeritus at the Australian National University. Um, but in those days she was doing her first field work in Central Australia. So we're talking the late 1970s time period when, you know, the Land Rights Act had just been passed and it was a really different... Um, in a really different kind of moment in Australian history. Uh, we ended up in Central Australia at a place then called Warrabri, now called Alikarung. Um, and it was a small settlement, about a thousand people, uh, lots of different Aboriginal groups that were living there. And when we came, I, at that point, spent most of my childhood in Melbourne, a little bit in Canberra. You know, we were a working class family. Mum was, you know, first generation to take advantage of Whitlam's educational reforms to get into university. Yeah. And Warrabri was something else again. I mean, it was different in every conceivable way. It looked different, it smelt different, people behaved differently. It was, you know, all bets were kind of off. And it was uh, an extraordinary childhood. The people that mum worked with and that we lived with were endlessly generous and really kind and showed my brother and I and mum their country and told us its stories and showed us how to be in that place in a way that I don't think all of my friends in school knew. Yeah. And... When we came back the first time from Central Australia, right, I mean, I'd been with these people who had this continuous relationship to that country that, you know, I knew was long. I didn't quite know it was 60,000 years, but I knew it was like a deep relationship to that place. And I came back to Canberra and people said these just dreadful things about Aboriginal people and it was really hard to reconcile that 
narrative with the police I'd been. And I remember being really upset about it. I got into tension a lot in those years because, you know, I spent a lot of time telling my teachers they were just wrong, which is always a good look. (laughs) And I remember mum explaining to my brother and I at that point in time that just because that's the way the world was didn't mean it was the way it had to be. And she basically said to my little brother and I, listen, you know, you can make the world a better place. Like, in fact, you have a moral obligation to do that and it's going to involve everything. You have to put your intellect, your time, your heart, your passion, even your life, if it comes down to that, on the line if you want to make the world a better place and you have a moral obligation to do that. And that's been a kind of a guiding North Star for me for, well, ever since. Yeah. So interestingly, around that cultural anthropology work that your mother was doing at the time, what was she seeking to learn? Good question. So my mum was part of the strong wave. It went through both British and Australian and indeed American anthropology uh, of feminist anthropology, of starting to ask the question of what would it be if we looked at women not through the lens of Western societies, you know, arguably quite strong patriarchy in the 1970s, but to actually look at those cultures in their own terms and to say, well, did women's roles in those cultures look like they look like in the West? And so she went to look at what Aboriginal women were doing in that part of the world. And what did she learn? Uh, that, in fact, Aboriginal women had a whole uh, way that they were part of Aboriginal societies, in this particular case, the Kaidech and Warramonga and Aliara, and that, you know, Aboriginal women had centres of knowledge and power that were complementary to male centres of knowledge and power, and that for many ritual activities, you needed to have both of those centres configured simultaneously, and that women. Aboriginal women were not, in fact, the way they had been written up in the literature, the ethnographic literature up until then, that they were, in fact, quite different than they were being imagined and Mm. that, you know, there were ways of making sense of all of that. So was there an intent to apply that knowledge elsewhere, you know, to to benefit, to to bring something forward, to to try to bring about a change? All of anthropology is about how do we use a rich understanding of other cultures both to make sense of those cultures and treat them more appropriately and also make more sense of our own. Right. So I think for hers it was about how do we start to tell a more nuanced and accurate story about Aboriginal lives and how would that then shape everything from public policy to the way land rights was enacted. I think it was also about how do we, by asking the right questions, start to enrich in our understandings of everything. Right. And so in terms of the impact of that work, did it? where did it manifest itself? Where did it see? Did it see itself through to some policy change? Uh, so mum did a lot of stuff, right? I mean, her monograph based on that work became... A national bestseller in Australia, which is pretty oh. unheard of for an ethnographic monograph. I think it's probably still one of the only ones that that's true about. Um, she ended up working with the Law Reform Commission when they were okay. starting to work about how to do um, various kinds of legal plurality in Australia. She worked on a number of cases under the Land Rights Act, so working on helping Indigenous people lay claim to a crown land in the Northern Territory. And then ultimately when she finished, she ended up working at the Sacred Sites Authority. Um, in the Northern Territory of actually working out how did you start to make clear Aboriginal ownership and Aboriginal sacredness on that country and how did you do it in a way that was respectful of Indigenous traditions but also uh, managed through systems of law. So, no, she always worked around those things. Yeah, right. And it sounds like your mum was your hero and she was a cultural anthropologist and I. at what point did you say, I'm going to be like mum? Oh, I didn't think I wanted to be like my mother or my father. So my dad's an engineer. Right. Um, so listen, my mum's my hero because she was a moral, principled human being who did what she thought was right, even when the costs were really high. Right. I thought you could do that in other ways. Um, okay. So when I was little coming back from Warrabri, um, I think when I was very small, I thought, well, okay, the world needs to be different. And I looked around and went, who makes the world different? And I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, right? So I'm lucky enough to be a child of well, watching Whitlam come into power and having that changed the arc of my whole family's existence. I was lucky enough to see Hawke in the early days. Yep. And I think I looked at all of that and went, right, politicians change the world. I mean, I saw Fraser too. So I was like, you know, politicians <laughs> change the world. It's clearly in between there. I was like, okay, so politics seems to be a way to get things done. I shall become the first female Prime Minister of Australia. Okay. I declared when right I was, up. you know, quite small. <laughs> I shall just do that, right? And how do you do that? And, you know, if you're small, you kind of look at that and you go, okay, 
on the 1980s. How did you become a prime minister? Well, you had to go to university. That seemed like a good idea. You probably should do law. You should be involved in student politics. You should probably, you know, be involved because, you know, I come from the left side of the world. You should be involved in labour. You should go find, you know, student activism, young labour, finally find yourself a place that you wanted to go represent because there were big issues that needed to be discussed. You would get to parliament and then you would become prime minister. I mean, fuzzy on the details, right? Because I was probably 12. <laughs> well, at least you had a plan. I did have a plan. It involved <laughs> university law and becoming prime minister. And, you know, my mum was really good about going, yeah, okay, <laughs> off you go then. And so, you know, I'd actually, I'd been executing to that plan pretty aggressively <laughs> through my teenage years and thinking that I was going to be a politician because I thought that's how you drove change. And I got myself off to, um, got into Sydney Uni, having created a bit of chaos in Canberra in my last years in high school. Um because, you know, I didn't think things were fair and I made some pretty no bones about that. I think I was at one point in the mid-1980s, I was the youngest person in the Australian history to ever lodge a freedom of information request and also to lodge a complaint with the Commonwealth Ombudsman. <laughs> it's like a dubious and awful distinction to have as like a 17-year-old. Like, not a line item you want to put in your CV. Yeah, I didn't see that. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, well, there's a reason for that. It's mostly pre-digital. Um, though every now and again, if you, you know, go looking through Trove, you can find pictures of me in the Canberra Times, I think, under the headline, Latin students are revolting, <laughs> um, which was always a good look. Um, yeah, I think we thank a few people for that one. Um, so, you know, I'd gotten into Sydney Uni in yep. some of their really early years of their combined arts law degree because yep. I kind of thought, well, I know it's not just about law, it's about, you know, the broader kind of conversation and I sort of was interested in the humanities and history in particular. And I took myself off to Sydney Uni on one of those open days having gotten in and... Um, Someone in the history department took one look at me and went, oh, geez, you look like Di's daughter. And I'm like, oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> like, I don't know if I can deal with this. And so I decided, and I was also, I was really young. I finished high school when I was 16 or 17. So I decided I kind of wasn't quite ready. And so I took a bit of time off and did, you know, the classic Canberra thing. Yeah. Took the test for the public service. That's, okay. That's what you do. Yep. And ended up in the public service. Spent two years in the Department of Local Government and Administrative Services. Right. A yes minister department. Do, doing what? Uh, mostly Administration, photoc yeah, mostly photocopying. Photocopying. I was really good at photocopying. <laughs> I could photocopy into seven different coloured pieces of paper. I also learned how to word process and I can touch type. So I was, a, you know, a little yeah. dynamo. And then I realised that was just not going to be a good look either. <laughs> so somewhere along the line there, um, I was lucky enough to get to go to the US and I saw... Yeah, how did that happen? That's a, that's, well, you, you know, know. As one does. Um, Mum had a fellowship. Okay. And there was a conference going on in the States in 85 looking at um, uh, Bryn Mawr College, actually, which was a centre for feminist anthropology. And they were having a conference about um, kind of history of anthropology and, you know, women's women doing anthropology and anthropology of women. And so mum had been invited and she'd had a fellowship up at Smith College in Massachusetts as well. And so she said, if you can make enough money for a plane ticket, you know, you should You can come. come. Which, yeah. you know, not a bad deal. So I made enough money for a plane ticket um, and I went. And that was the first time I'd ever been to the US, first time I'd, you know, ever spent any time doing that sort of thing. And America was big and scary and weird and not at all like Australia. Um, but I lobbed into Bryn Mawr and it was like otherworldly. I mean, here was this beautiful little tiny university. It's like a pristine jewel of a place and it was spring their time so the cherry blossoms were in bloom and it was all pink and blue and sands you know these gray you know gray granite buildings and lead light windows and pink flowers and then these unbelievably smart women who were really sophisticated and elegant and just stupidly smart and I just remember looking at that and going I am a feral dag like I just <laughs> could not look less the part if I tried but I want that like badly I yeah. want to be part of that. I want some piece of that world because that was just unimaginable here at that moment in time. I think in some ways it still is. And I thought, I'm never going to make a... Oh, there's no way they'd take someone like me. I mean, I'm not stupid. I'd clearly done okay in school, but I was just... I wasn't in that orbit. But did you put your head down then and just say, look, the uh, only way I'm going to get here is if I do squeeze everything I've got out of me so I can get invited in? Uh, you know, I did something even more stupid than that, something much more Australian, um, <laughs> frankly. Uh, so... I was invited to go talk to the woman who ran admissions for the university um, right. as a favour for a, a friend of my mother's and I got into a fight with her <laughs> about scholastic aptitude tests because that was what I've been fighting in Australia about. And we had a really big fight about scholastic aptitude tests and standardised testing and why that was not a measure of intelligence and what it was a measure of and I was really a bit full on. Right. Uh, you know, as you might be. 
17 or 18. 17, I think I was then. I was pretty full on. Right. And at the end of it, I was mortified, right? Oh, God, I was so embarrassed. And I remember going back to the person who'd made the introduction and I was like, I'm so sorry. Like, I know you did this incredibly gracious thing and I'm really grateful and I'm so sorry that I just couldn't help myself. And this woman just laughed and she said, the head of admissions has already called, you're in. If you oh, want to wow. come, you're just the kind of person they like here. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's a very odd reward system <laughs> for a behaviour that I know should not be rewarded. But as it was, we couldn't afford the tuition. I mean, it was ridiculously expensive even right. then. Um, there just wasn't the money for it. And so I came back to Australia, kept working, made enough money to... Okay. Think about how I would fund. Back, some to, of the it. Back to the public service. Make some. Make some more money. But knowing service. then that you that you were going I was, back. I there. was trying to fund my exit. Yeah. yeah, and then I, you know, I applied through the appropriate official channels and okay. won all the scholarships they had to give me. Yeah, great. Which you know still left. You know, didn't fund for everything, and you know I got exit velocity out of Australia and off I took myself to Philadelphia. Yeah. How many years did you – was that? Was that a three-year No, so, so it's a liberal arts degree So okay. by American standards. So a classic liberal arts degree would be four-year undergraduate program where what makes it liberal arts, that kind of designation, is that it is um, – you have a concentration, so there's a thing you are focused on, and then whatever the rest of the university is that is not that. So in my case, the concentration was anthropology, although that was an accident I'll tell you about in a second. But because I was doing anthropology, that meant I also then had to go do two years of maths, two years of a language, two oh, years yeah. of science and literature. So the idea was you should emerge out of a liberal arts degree with a, a, a comprehensive education yep. in science, maths, yep. English literature the social sciences and the humanities. Wow. And that you should actually be able to do a little bit of all of those things and a baseline in um, literature and science or a language. And so the idea was that, you know, part of the reason Americans do it that way is that law, medicine, engineering, those are mostly um, advanced degrees, they're secondary degrees. Yeah. And the liberal arts degree is this kind of building block degree. Right. But, you know, when I'd first seen Bryn Mawr and I'd first encountered this notion of a liberal arts degree, that sounded like the most extraordinary thing. Yeah. And it was an amazing thing to be part of, right? I mean, it was a, at a time when I think Australia was still ambivalent about being smart. And where that was still a thing where you get teased about. I have many nicknames in high school that all had to do with, you know, being a bit wordy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I got to Bryn Mawr, that was a place where having your head in a book and having big ideas and being willing to argue about them, that was expected behaviour. And that was extraordinarily liberating for me. Yeah. And, you know, I got there and my, you know, everyone's a pretty high touch university. So there's only 1,600 people all up. Yeah. So 400 in any given year. Um, and, you know, they sit you down and kind of ask you what you want to do and there's a lot of things you are required to do. So, you know, do this piece of English literature, do a science. And at some point my, you know, my advisor said, you know, you should do something that you kind of feel comfortable with. And I went, okay. I looked across the spectrum and, well, you know, anthropology might right. be that. And, you know, I rocked into my first anthropology class and it was... So was it deliberate or was it a little bit offhand, really? It was it a bit wasn't... offhand in some ways okay. for me. It was like I needed something that I didn't think was going to be as terrifying as everything else. Right. And as it was, it, you know, <laughs> as it was, the anthropology piece was actually... It was, uh, um, it was one of the ways I managed being terribly, terribly homesick. Right. Because, you know, I went to Bryn Mawr before, well... Aerograms. We still sent aerograms. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and for those aerograms. Well, yeah, because that's because we're old. (laughs) So, so like half of your listeners are not that old, and they're like, "What the hell is an aerogram?" So, an aerogram is a piece of blue paper that you bought from the post office that was pre-franked, so it had a pre-postage paid on it. It was really fine paper, and you folded it up like a piece of origami and stuck it closed. Which meant the trick was how much could you write inside this? You know, basically A4 piece of paper before you folded it up and stuck it away. And I know you're all going, what the hell? But basically, yeah, it was <laughs> And out. then you licked it. And then you licked it. It's like you licked the four sides. Then you had to make sure when you opened it on the other end, you didn't tear anyone's writing. So it was like, it really was. It was like origami and post office all in one. Yeah. And they had a very ridiculous smell to them. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to university in aerogram days, right? I mean, yeah. I don't think I got an email address until I was uh, my third year there. And I was unusual to have one. It wasn't even an email address. It was, you know, something altogether different. 
Um, but, you know, we're talking before the internet. We're talking when phone calls were a sort of thing you only did once a month and only because something dreadful had happened. And, you know, America was very far away. Yeah. And Philadelphia was even further yeah. away. And, yeah, it, yeah. you know, I thought I'd understand Americans because I'd seen some American television. Oh, how wrong was I? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the money was different. The yeah. light switches went the other way. The yeah. locks turned the other way. I understood nothing anyone was saying to me the entire time. It's right. so, like the only thing that felt familiar that I could manage was anthropology. Did you at any point want to come home? Were there day- Obviously everyone has their good and their bad. Did you feel like... You'd walk away from it, or was the, the first time compelling the sort of attraction of what the you were learning? First time the sky opened up and snow fell down <laughs> and did not stop falling for two days, <laughs> and I thought, "Huh." <laughs> I said to one of my colleagues who was, you know, from that part of the world, "I'm like, how long is this going to go on?" And she sort of smiled and went, "Oh, until March." I'm like, "It's October." She's like, "Yeah, like, what's your problem?" Yeah. I was like, "I have sneakers. <laughs> I'll need different footwear, also a coat." <laughs> So, no, the first time it snowed, I remember just thinking, I can't do this. No, I was homesick all the time. I mean, I missed I missed my country. Yeah. I missed the sound of the birds, the way it smelt. I missed having people whose voices I recognised. I missed being easily understood. Yep. <laughs> yep. No, I missed all of it. I, I would have come home, I think, almost any day that someone had given me a plane ticket, but I didn't have a plane ticket and plane tickets okay. were expensive and I was stubborn and I was not going to waste that opportunity. And did you... Uh, Things have turned out a particular way and we'll come to that in a moment, but was there any direction at that point that you had that you were thinking... I still thought I was going to be Prime Minister. What, are you okay, kidding? No, 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 no. I just figured I was going to go okay, do a degree. fair enough. I know, I was, you know, I was quite determined. I figured, well, I'll just go do one degree in America and then I'll come back and do a law degree and that'll be right. fine. And, you know, so I was doing student politics and stuff in the state, so, you know, I'm kind of keeping my end in. So, no, I still thought I was coming home. Right. Okay. <laughs> but then obviously from there off to, to Stanford for the cultural... Anthropology PhD. And again, what was the thinking there? What was... Oh, well, so at the point it suddenly became clear I might be an anthropologist, that was a bit of a moment. Right. I had to call my mother. Like, it was a long-distance phone call, an expensive phone call. Mum, I've got something to tell you. She's like, yes. I'm like, I think I want to, you know, do my degree in anthropology. And she was like, why would you do that? She's like, why anthropologist? Like, really? That's quite enough. Like, why? And I didn't actually have a good answer except that I liked it. Um... And so there was a bit of the, why on earth are you doing anthropology? Like, seriously, like a whole other set of things you could do. And there was always something about it that spoke to me, right? I liked the, I liked the pattern piece of it. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I was always a, an interesting challenge. So no, and it turned out I was good at it. Um, and I was lucky enough to be in a position in that time in my life when I could pursue a PhD and it seemed crazy not to. I mean, Stanford yeah. was a... A funded scholarship. If you got into Stanford, they paid for you to be there. They paid for your education. They only took five or six people a year in yeah. anthropology. But if you got in, it was funded. But back then, was it the technology oh, university? God, no. no, it was. It, well, it was. It was, starting it was emerging. To be. It yeah. was emerging, wasn't it? But no, at that days it was. You know, probably you know top three anthropology departments in the country in the US. So it was, yeah. you know, it was a good anthropology traditional. Anthropology. Oh, yeah, very, yeah. very four-field kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, I mean, the tech stuff was going on. I mean, I kind of was loosely aware of it because, you know, I, I knew people that were working in those spaces. But, uh, listen, they could have been building the internet two buildings away and I wouldn't have yeah, noticed. Right. And, truthfully, they were and I didn't. Um, so I know that's true. <laughs> so, you know, there was this moment when I got out of Stanford and sort of looked around and went, wait, wait, you've been building all this? <laughs> what the hell was I doing there? So, no, I mean, you could be remarkably oblivious to that stuff if you choose and I apparently was. Because, you know, my doctoral work uh, was about, well, it was about a boarding school for Native kids. So my PhD is actually about the first... Uh, flagship of the assimilation era in the United States. So the late 1870s through the 1920s is a period in America characterised by a particular relationship between the nation state and indigenous people where it really was about aggressive, um, uh, kind of compulsive bringing indigenous people and putting them into white schools and white training and to try and I mean, assimilate them was the language, right? It is called yep. the assimilation era. Yep. And I ended up studying a school that was really important in that period of time. So it started in 1879 and it closed in 1918. It was in rural Pennsylvania and it took about 10,000 kids over that 40-year period from about 120 different Native American nations. Um, and it was started... Uh, as a kind of a sweetheart deal between the War Department and the Department of Indian Affairs. And the idea was that the school would be started by um, taking the children of the headmen and chiefs most hostile to the United States 
and putting them in a school. Wow. So basically they were going to compel people to stop fighting with them by kidnapping their children. Yeah, right. And the school was an intensely complicated place. Uh, it was incredibly symbolic in all kinds of ways and it was never as straightforward as it appeared on the surface. And so when I encountered the place, I actually encountered it first as a cemetery because where the school was is now an army barracks um, in Pennsylvania. And I had gone there looking for traces of the school so I knew something about it. And what I actually found instead was a cemetery on the edge of the campus. And there's a cemetery with 220 kids buried in it. And I just remember thinking, there weren't any massacres that are of this ilk in this part of Pennsylvania. Like, what is this? And I couldn't let it go. And so I spent six years working on that project. I was lucky enough to won a scholarship to go spend a bunch of time in the National Archives in DC. There were about 70 linear feet of records associated with the school. And then when I started, there were about a dozen people still left alive who'd gone. So I talked to them, tracked down descendants, read a lot of records, wrote a history about a place that didn't exist when I was alive because it just wouldn't let me go. Yeah, right. And so... What did you take from that? What 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 effect had, did that have on you at that point in time? I used to be haunted by all those kids. Yeah. Um, I mean, literally, I just dream about them. Um, so what did it do? I mean, at a scholarly level, there were a couple of pieces of that project that were kind of relevant to my intellectual growth. One of them was that it was a project that really combined a quantitative analysis of the school and a qualitative one. So could we start to see patterns in the numbers of who went there, where they came from, how long they stayed, what they did afterwards? Could you marry that with the stories that were in the records and the stories that people were telling me? So how did you put those things together in a way that told a more complicated story yeah. and, a, and a one that kind of cleaved closer to what it might have been like. But it, it was a uniformly um, destructive... Oh, it was, um, no, it was so much more complicated than that. Right. I mean, you know, it was a school that had the kinds of violence we would have seen in schools of any kind at that moment in time, white kids, black kids, native kids. Um, but it was also a place that had some really unintended consequences and unexpected consequences given that it was built by the nation state in an attempt to kind of, you know, assimilate Indigenous kids. One of the interesting consequences was that what actually ended up happening was that first cohort of of kids turned out to be culturally powerful because they'd been the children of leaders in their communities. And so they came back to their communities now highly literate and educated. Right. And became cultural brokers, right? They were the ones who that first cohort negotiate to get Native people um, the right to citizenship in the United States. Yeah. So they formed the first uh, basically citizenship associations. They also knew how to um, critically interrogate treaty documents and ask for different rights than had been granted before. So, you know, in an attempt to basically, quote-unquote, pacify people, what they had actually done is educated them. And in their education they became people who argued with the state. And for some people, it was at a time when the frontier was still closing in the US and those communities were violent and haphazard. Um, Parents sometimes sent their kids to Carlisle to keep them safe, which must be the most awful choice I can begin to think about, right? You know, you want your kids with you, speaking your language on your country, and the only way you can think to keep them alive is send them somewhere else. That is like, it's not even a Hobson's choice, right? That is something so awful. But people did that. And then over the years, people would send their own kids back there. And that's a that's such a hard act to read yeah. about what's going on in that. And then for some people, that was a moment in time where things were stable and they could work out what it meant to be them and where because they were surrounded by other people that looked and sounded like them, it was a, a safer place to be. But it had all the issues about violence and racism and more violence. Um, and, you know, there were moments of levity and sweetness and I think there were incredibly strong relationships that got forged there but it wasn't as simple as saying it was all bad it was just complicated yeah like those things always are so at the end of this challenging um, period where you've you know explored you know so many complex issues and tried to make sense of it for a well, for the benefit of society, really, to understand mistakes mm-hmm. yep. of the past and everything else. Um, did you still want to be Prime Minister? 
No, I think, no, I, I, think, I, think, I, think I think I've gotten over that by then. <laughs> I think I thought, yeah, that's not going to happen. Okay. <laughs> so you end up in this bar in Silicon Valley. You know, you've now, you know, you're accomplished. Um, you know, you're heading down this path of academia, obviously, to do further work in the, you know, this pure field of anthropology. And you struck up a conversation with someone who had an alternative. Tell me that story. Oh, yeah, it's all Australian stories. I met a man in a bar. Um, I didn't I realise at the time that was going to be the narrative that would dog my existence. Um, so, listen, when I finished my PhD, I actually ended up on the faculty at Stanford. So okay. I was teaching there and I was continuing to work with the material I'd collected. I was thinking about what projects I would do next. I was, you know, working on a book. I was doing all the things you do when you're kind of pursuing tenure. But it was also the valley and, you know, so Silicon Valley and I knew other people there so and you, I was kind of a... So you had started to pay attention and started to see... Oh, you know, this <laughs> Yeah, no, I kind of, you know, I sort of understood the internet at this point. Um, you know, I'd certainly been online. I had an email address, uh, which I had to argue for. I got my first email address at Stanford in 92 and I had to get a, a letter from the chair of the anthropology department to justify to the web, the sysadmin guy in the basement why it was I needed an email address. Like, I'm from another country. He's like, oh, okay, fine. Um... So, yes, no, I had been paying attention. Not a great deal of attention, but I had been paying attention. But what was the Why was, what I was in the a conversation? Bar? Well, no, oh. I can understand why you're in the no, bar. No, it's actually relevant because oh, I, was, it? I, no, I was in the bar with a mate of mine and she'd broken up with someone wholly unsuitable. Okay. And I was there to basically look after her while she got drunk because she was going to get back together <laughs> with him again because that's what she always did. So this was kind of this was ritualised activity. So I'm in the bar. I'm talking to the person who is not talking to my friend and he says to me what was at that point incredibly common American bar activity, which is staggering to think about because his opening line to say to me was, so what do you do? I'm like, oh, my God, really? You need to work on that. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm a, you know, I, I said cheerfully because I really didn't want to be in this conversation. I'm a professor. And he's like, why did you say I said, I'm a cultural anthropologist. That's what I actually said. And he's like, what's that? I'm like, oh, okay, fine. I study people. <laughs> and he's like, Why? Like, well, because they're interesting. <laughs> and he was like, oh, which cut clear. Sort of, oh, you're an engineer. <laughs> I was like, not good. And he's like, well, but what do you do with that exactly? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm a professor at, you know, of anthropology. He went, hmm, couldn't you do more? I remember thinking, actually, being a professor is kind of a big deal. <laughs> like, I'm not really sure I want to do more. Like, that seems like a good end point, like, surely. And I kind of thought, yeah, I don't want to talk to you anymore, basically. And so I kind of bounced out of that conversation. And I really didn't think a lot more of it because, you know, you just don't. And then he called me at home the next day. And the striking thing about that is that I had not given him my phone number because okay. That's good. I didn't want to give him my phone number. Right. And so the fact that he had called me at my house was mildly creepy. Right. And so he says, this is Bob from the bar last night. I'm like, how did you get my number? Because that seemed like a good first question. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, I called all the anthropology departments in the Bay Area looking for you. I'm okay. like, what did you ask for? He's like, red-headed Australian. <laughs> he said in Stanford, went, oh, do you mean Genevieve? Do you want her home phone number? <laughs> totally appalling. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay. I'm but like, there's but something mildly also... No, um, there isn't. No, there, there... no, no if, you're, if you're a woman, there is no explanation where this is mildly charming. This is just he's stalking you and it's creepy. Well, I, I get that. But from his point of view, you must have made such an impression that he thought, hang on, there's, there's, there's something here. And... and yet still stalking. It's bit, let's be clear. Let's be clear. Even then I thought... This is not a good look. And I'm like, I'm not interested. Like, first statement off the deck. Like, yeah. I'm not interested. He's like, no, 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 not like that. I'm yeah. Like, well, what do you want then? Yeah. He's like, well, you seem interesting. I'm like, okay, <laughs> still we're venturing right back into stalking territory again. Like, well, what do you want? He's like, well, can I buy you lunch? And it turns out if you're out of graduate school not that long, the prospect of free food, you're like, oh, crap. Okay, sure. <laughs> It's like, why? He's like, I want to introduce you to my partners. And so I went and had lunch with he and his partners. And it turned out, you know, he was a serial entrepreneur in the valley. He was making smart paper at that point using RFID tagging and e-ink. So, you know, stuff that was all kind of going on. And we had lunch in actually what I now know to be quite a famous place in Silicon Valley for doing deals. I didn't know that at the time. And he basically says to me, we're going to replace paper. And I look at him and just shake my head. He's like, what is that about? I said, paper is a stubborn material artefact. And he says, what does that mean? And I say, well, paper carries all this weight and it's easier to use than the digital stuff and people use it for not just, you know, the work that it does, it actually signals all these other things, right? There's a reason we give people cards, there's a reason we write things on post-it notes and put them on surfaces. Like paper actually does all this work that isn't just about the transmission of knowledge. 
And, you know, for your listeners out there in, you know, Wonderland, I can tell you David has a whole piece of paper in front of him that he keeps <laughs> writing on. And no small part of it is about both reminding him what he needs to ask about, but just a little bit of disciplining me too with the I've got more questions. And so I say to, you know, this guy, listen, paper does all this stuff. And he's like, wow, that's fascinating. Do you know other things like that? <laughs> And I think to myself, yes, I have a liberal arts education. I know lots of other things like that. And many meals ensued. <laughs> so okay. I, I ended up hanging out with he and his, and his kind of cohort and right. ultimately they introduced me to the guys at Intel. Right. And when you got to Intel, I'm, I'm intrigued by, you know, this amazing, you know, technology company when you go back through the history of Intel, oh, God, you know, yes. the, the micro... Um, processing chips mm-hmm. and Moore's Law and everything, you know, the, the way that they have led the revolution, mm-hmm. you know. And I knew none of that. At the time. At you didn't the time. know? I don't know. I mean, I kind of, you know, what but, did I know but about... where was that, so sorry, where was what that did, conversation? What did though? I know about Intel in 1998? I knew, do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Intel theme song. I knew the logo. Yeah. I knew microprocessors. Right. But what was that conversation? But Because was a, it was a technology company seeking greater insights about people. I'm, that sounds to me where it, where it's yeah. is that where it started? Was it yeah, as simple as that? Was, well, yeah, simple and as not simple as that. I mean, that was absolutely how it started. Um, there were a couple of challenges. So, um, Intel, like many tech companies in those days, because uh, we're talking 1998 at this point, so we're talking the middle of the dot com boom. Yeah, like it was just Silicon Valley was crazy. Right. I mean, it really was. I cannot describe just how kind of surreal a moment in time that was in terms of just activities that seem to just sort of cycle <laughs> with a sort of an energy of their own and not a lot of coherence. Yeah. So there was a job description that was a sentence right. that they kept trying to hire me against. And I think the sentence was, you know, uh, end user researcher impact analyst. Yeah. And like, you know, looking for, you know, a researcher with quantitative or qualitative skills, preferably PhD, to understand end users. Yeah. Now, now, who knows what any of that those words mean? Like, I don't know. And if you're an academic, yeah. position descriptions mm. are remarkably long. Right. They have a lot of details in them and a lot of expectations. And this one just didn't have very much. Yeah. And so they kept kind of saying, you need to come join us. And I kept asking, what will I be doing? And no one had an answer. Right. They just kept saying, well, you own your own career at Intel. You know, we'll work it out when you get here. And I'm like, okay, so here's the thing. Was that a problem or was that a well, it wasn't, was it liberate coming out of the the, yeah, the, well, the you know the straitjacket of academia where this is what you're going to do into you can make I, it up initially I just thought they were insane right. I mean because you know the academy trains you to look for a certain set of things and I couldn't find them so I just kept thinking these people what are they doing like yeah. I don't understand the request I don't understand what they want they seem very odd persistent but odd <laughs> and they just keep babbling like make all this noise and I'm like oh, I got things to do and then. It's about six months into that conversation, and it didn't take us that long, Intel and I, to get to kind of a mutual understanding, or at least for me to understand them, I think. And I had kept dismissing it out of hand. And, God, nearly 20 years ago. (laughs) It's astonishing to me. Um, I had a moment of realising that I had been, in some ways, not making sense of the fact that this was actually a decision. That, you know, I had seen this as... You could be a tenured professor at Stanford. Yeah, big deal. Uh, you could be a tenured professor yeah. at Stanford or there were these nutters. <laughs> like, and I just didn't, it wasn't a decision for me. Right? They were completely different worlds. And then at some point the penny dropped. I mean, I remember waking up one morning in, um, in Stanford and thinking to myself, wait a second. Like, you know, yeah. I could be, if I'm really good and I play all my cards right and I'm careful and deliberate, I might get tenure here. Like, I might. And I'll have to have been really buttoned up and really good for a protracted period of time. And, you know, I thought I could probably get that done. And when I'm done, what will I be? You know, I'll still be a professor. I'll still be teaching. You know, I may touch this number of students and this much of the world is that, and you know, and that felt like that was good. Like, felt like that would be making a difference. That felt like I was shaping the world. And I thought that was the, 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 the thing I was signed up for. And the kind of closest to an epiphany a little atheist girl can have was the one I had where I realised that actually what Intel was offering me was also a chance to have impact. That, you know, here was a company yeah. that, as you say, was a, 
a glorious technology company. They were in the middle of the biggest technological transformation of our lifetimes at that point. They were making the internet, literally yeah. and physically making the internet. Yeah. And they had come to realise that they needed to understand people, not just technology, and they wanted me. And then I went, oh, wait, okay, so this is really actually a proper decision. This yeah. is a decision between do you do the thing that you've been raised around, trained for, and that you know what success looks like and you can see what the path is? Or do you take this other thing where you know no one who's ever done that before and you don't know what that path looks like and you've never seen anyone be successful in it? But if you got it even a little bit right, you'd change all sorts of things. Mm. And with the hubris you can have when you're 29 years old, I went, I picked that path. <laughs> and so I then... Do you have any idea, though, at that point, just how big that yeah. potential impact could have been? Oh, good no. Lord, no. no. No, I think if I had, I might have considered it slightly differently. No, I, I kind of... The calculation I made in my head was, well, if it's a complete catastrophe, it'll be an interesting right. two years' worth of field work. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea I'd still be there 20 years later. I mean, no idea. Literally yeah. none. I mean, I just thought this would be a... I don't think I knew what I thought. But what did you do first? My new boss sat me down and said, well, now that you're here, we need your help with two things. I'm like, for six months there was no job description mm. and now it's two things. Like, yeah, what two. are they? All right, good. And she says, well, the first thing we need your help with is women. Yeah. I'm like, okay, Chris, <laughs> which women? Like, there's 3.2 billion women on the planet, which mm. women? She's like, oh, no, all women. Mm. I'm like, okay, what do you want me to do with 3.2 billion women? She's like, I'd be great if you could tell us what they want. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, good. So in my notebook I actually wrote down the words women, all, and underlined it and tried to imagine what is the project I am going to do by which I will explain women and explain that it's not actually a meaningful category but also tell them something yeah. useful. That was, that was a nice research problem to have until okay. I realised this new boss had said there were two things. Uh, yeah. And if thing number one is women all... It is mildly scary to contemplate what your new boss imagines the other part of your job might be. I think I secretly hoped it would be men because <laughs> then it could be everything. <laughs> Just study humans and make sense of them for us. But now my new boss said, listen, we have an ROW problem at Intel. And this is 1998, so I have to kind of always remind myself of that. And I had a problem because I didn't know what the acronym stood for. I was going to say, I was about to ask, what's yeah. ROW? Oh, uh, that's what I asked. Uh, turns out the answer was really quite troubling because my new boss said that ROW stood for rest of world. <laughs> And you know where this is going, right? Because I'm like, okay, so where's world so that you have a thing you call rest of world? And she's like, oh, that's America. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God. And she's like, and we're really excited because you're from rest of world. <laughs> I'm like, yes, Australia as exotic destination. I'm like, oh, good, I'm really excited to be here too. So I sort of went back to my desk and I thought, oh, God, okay. So my job description is explain women and rest of world. Yeah. It's like, you know, I used to joke that my job was to explain everyone who wasn't in the building to everyone who was in the building, which was harsh and unfair. Um, but it felt like that in the early days. So, you know, basically my first couple of weeks was... Was it, was it through the lens of technology and the impacts of technology? No. Uh, actually, the really lovely thing about Intel then, as is true now for many of these big tech companies, is there is actually a genuine interest in basic research and actually yep. sort of first principle stuff. And you get to wonder sometimes how, why those are the first principles, but you know, they're interested in kind of basic research. So no, I mean, a lot of the work we did wasn't about how are you going to use this fill-in-the-blank piece of technology. It was tell us what you care about. Yeah. You know, we want to understand what makes this community tick or this place work or what are your ways of doing things. And so a lot of it was really traditional ethnographic work where we would okay. go, you know, do deep hanging out and just sort of get a sense of what made people tick. And then the hard piece... That was the appropriate work was how did you then make those ways that people lived, make their life ways intelligible to a tech company? And how did you then think about what are the the insights you needed to extract from that that were relevant to building new technology? Yeah. So that point, I'm interested in that. How that translation piece, how did you make that work for them? Listen, for part of our first work wasn't even about how do you extract insights out of that, but how do you get a company of engineers and computer scientists comfortable with the idea that what people wanted might count for something. Yep. So, you know, you mentioned Moore's Law earlier, right? You know, yep. one of Intel's great differentiators was the fact that what it was building was a knowable cadence of scientific breakthroughs. Yes. So, you know, we, were, we were shrinking you know, the yeah. size of the transistor every, you know, yeah. 18 months to two years and doubling it in density yeah. on, a, on a, you know, fixed financial curve. And that was a lot of work. 
and you know what we actually had to do was get comfortable with the idea that innovation wasn't just informed by what was technically possible but by what people cared about yeah and then if you understood what people cared about you would make different decisions in terms of your technical directions right and so a lot of the job wasn't about the individual pieces of work it was about what the work said more broadly and which then- which also meant you then had to spend a lot of time explaining to engineering managers that they weren't normal. <laughs> and the challenge for Intel was that the entire leadership cohort at that point, oh, God, they were good They were good human beings. Yeah. But, you know, they built servers for fun in their basements <laughs> and they thought that everyone did that. They built computers for fun in their basements and they were surprised that I didn't. Um, they were mostly blokes. They were engineers. They had an orientation to technology. They were at that point in their lives comparatively wealthy. And they'd made their entire careers on the back of building technology and selling it to people remarkably like themselves. Right. And so one of the first pieces of work we actually did there wasn't about any of the individual pieces of research. It was getting the leaders of the company to realise that they weren't like the world they needed to be successful in. Right. Which meant mostly we told a lot of stories about people who didn't build servers in their basements. My colleagues and I treated Intel in that first year or two like it was also a research project. So we treated Intel like it was field work. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Because we actually worked out what makes this company tick. You know, so we knew how presentations were given, so we knew how to push the boundaries just a little bit. Right. So, you know, Intel was a place where everyone used PowerPoint. Still true. We like PowerPoint. Lots of American companies and even Australian companies like PowerPoint. There was a lot of PowerPoint. Okay, fine. The thing about PowerPoint in those days was that everyone put graphs and charts and they would point it to it and say, I'm really sorry this is a complete eye chart and then show it to you anyway. And you're like... Okay, if you know that, why haven't you fixed that? And so we looked at that method and went, okay, so there are other ways to use PowerPoint. You could use it the way designers now do with full bleed photos and very few words. And so we went full bleed photo in a time when no one was doing that inside the company at all. And in fact, we crashed the entire internal network at one point by sending them around without working out how to compress photos. (laughs) Bit of a fail. Um, But, you know, we sort of went, okay, so if PowerPoint, what are the, how far can you push PowerPoint? And so, yeah, it was absolutely about telling stories. So we were using every mechanism we knew from our lives, from our various other sort of roles that we had had to work out how do you haunt the place with stories of people that weren't like the leaders? Like how did you haunt the place with stories of people that were actually using the technology? Yeah. So photos, uh, stories we used to have. At one point we had full cardboard cutouts of photos of people and we'd carry them with us to meetings to put real users in the room. Yeah. <laughs> we did yeah, all yeah. that stuff, right? Yeah. You know, how do you how do you break through? And yeah, it was an enormous amount about storytelling. It wasn't just about facts, right? Facts don't I wish they did. Facts don't always move people, right? Yeah. It's facts and emotion. Correct. So you had to match those things. So the path then through from from yeah. those early beginnings to to you know to to where you are now, where where has that taken you? Where's that been? And where are we? Because I'm I'm intrigued because you know in many ways we're still so very early in in yeah. the impact of technology on people. Yep. No, absolutely. And behaviour. Yep. Um, and I think everyone's wrestling with it. I think everybody out there, you know, this is a podcast for people who work in government who are trying to tell and well, explain policy, program, regulation, services. Um, and I think everyone's trying to sort of sit there and try, well, how, how do we do this best knowing that, you know, this change is continuing at warp speed and how do we make sense of the whole thing so that we can be better at explaining to people, the, you know, the why and, and the detail of just exactly what the decisions are that have been made. Yeah, all those questions and then yeah. a few others. <laughs> like, do I want that stuff in my house? What about my kids? Oh, my well, God, will, the, it, will the email ever end? Yeah. Oh, so listen, I mean, I think, you know, the path through Intel was a non-linear one mm. and I made a lot of decisions about wanting to do work that mattered. That's always been my kind of mm. my North Star that way. It's like, yeah. you know, do the work that matters and, you know, the rest of it will follow. Um, I think one of the things that was always clear from the earliest research we did was that, Every new technological wave is, um, it reverberates, right? It's not easy. It's not simple. The stories we tell in our vision videos about how the stuff's going to be is almost never the way it actually turns out to be. Because, you know, people don't live in those worlds. We live in worlds where there's already other stuff that we have and other things that we're doing. And the complexity of that is just really clear. I mean, I remember years ago, like a really long time ago, interviewing someone about technology and I was asking her some pretty straightforward stuff about what she was doing. And at one point she just looked at me and said, 
I sometimes feel like all the technology in my life is like a backpack full of baby birds with their mouths open screaming, feed me, feed me, feed me. <laughs> so then I want to zip that backpack up and throw it in the river. <laughs> and, you know, there's a long time ago and I still think that's a really prescient kind of observation yeah. that the technology feels really needy, right, that it wants all this stuff from <laughs> us and that occasionally those needs for connectivity and passwords and networks and refresh and update my drivers and, you know, give me my data plan, all that stuff feels incredibly needy. Yeah. And if the technology were another human being, you'd break up with them. <laughs> but that and but but what? Well, and I think you know at this particular point in time, I think there is that fatigue, mm. you know, that is really taking hold, oh, and you're seeing it in that the... fatigue has been there for a long time. Though we've just masked it, you know, right. other things came along and diminished some of it. But you know. If you are in the workforce and you've been in the workforce for more than five or ten years, email was bugging you ten years ago. It's not like you've suddenly woke up sometime in March of 2018 and went, that internet thing, that email, that's really irritating. Like I find email irritating. It's like you found email irritating ten years ago. Yeah. But isn't, aren't the volumes much greater though because everybody's in this content business, everyone's in the game, everyone's oh, trying listen, to... I reckon it depends where you are. I mean the data on technology use is still um, the people listening to this podcast... I mean, we're not normal, right? I mean, you know, we're not quite building servers in our basements, but we're probably not the average punter in Australia either. Yeah. Um, so there is a bit where it's easy to forget that. Oh, so you think it's overstated? No, I didn't say that. I just don't think that everyone experiences it the same way. I think it feels yeah. different depending on where yeah, you I think are. That's a good point. I think, and I, I think that's something that we do need to remember, remember, particularly as people who are in the communications business, is yeah. to understand that people aren't like us. Oh, not and everyone really... gets 200 to 300 emails a day. Some yeah. people are grateful for one. Yeah. <laughs> or not grateful, depending on how you feel about it, yeah. right? So I think there's a bit that says... Yes, yes, there is infinitely more than there was 10 years ago, but it's stuff in multiple, multiple channels that come at us now that didn't before and yeah. a sense of things you need to manage, right? So whether it is the people who use Facebook or Twitter or um, LinkedIn or, you know, Tinder or Snapchat yeah. or Vine or whatever the mechanism is you are, well, you know, pick any chat app, hmm. Signal, WhatsApp... WeChat, pick one. Yeah. You know, we are now, chances are, people are curating multiple avenues where they didn't used to do so many, right? So I'm willing to bet that, you know, most of your listeners are listening to this on a mobile device. They're probably doing something else at the same time. Yeah. Even if it is merely driving from point A to point B or walking from point A to point B, when they get there, they'll do a whole lot of other things. They may pause this and do something else. How do you not get lost in your own stuff and and be able to get that, empathy, yeah. you know, so as it, you can you can be better oh, listen, at, at, at understanding. Yeah, listen, David, I always think that's a really good question. Um, I start when I think about organisational transformation and development with th this fundamental premise that whoever is leading the organisation no longer looks like the people with whom they want to have a relationship. I think you just have to kind of call it that way, right, is that if you've gotten to be senior enough to lead something, yeah. chances are you don't look like the people that are your audience anymore for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. And depending on how long it took you to get there, chances are you, what made you successful getting to where you are may not be the logic of how the place now operates and may not be the logic of your customers, consumers, audience, stakeholders, citizens, right? Yeah. And so one of the really hard things is how do you bridge that distance, right? Step number one, you have to acknowledge that it exists. Yeah. So step number one, if you're an organisation or a human being, acknowledge that you have a delta problem, right? Your lived experience isn't everyone's. Yep. So, you know, start with realising that you're... But how, not... how do I convince somebody who's who has gone on that journey, who is now in that position of influence, who is now someone who is, you know, sitting at the top of the tree, that they're not who we need to talk to. The, you, you are not the person who I, I'm that interested in. I'm actually interested well, it's in them. interested in them is that what it is that motivates them may not be what motivates their audience. Yes. So I think you have to do a couple of things. I think part of it is you actually have to have a good fact-driven profile of your audience. And, yep. oh, by the way, it's usually not singular. So a good fact-driven profile of your audiences. Yes. Because <laughs> usually they are varied. Yes. Number one. Yeah. Number two, once you've got the data, I can guarantee you most leaders, no matter how good they are, will look at the data and if the data doesn't bear out their worldview, they'll just reject it. Right. They go, yeah, I know that, but actually we still don't. You're like, no, dude, that's not it. So then your problem is how do you put some bones on that data? How do you put, I mean, how do you put flesh on the bones of the data, right? So okay. if the data tells you what is happening, 
you need to work out why. What's the why of those people? What motivates them? What do they care about? What frustrates them? What are they looking for? And yeah. data rarely will get that to you. That's when you actually have to go and do qualitative research. Yeah. Which can be as straightforward as surveys. It can be as complicated as going and hanging out with the people that you are trying to do things with and meaningfully do so. This is not a FIFO experience. This is not, yes. you know, fly to where they are, spend an hour, leave. Yeah. This is actually go be in those places, try and do the things that your clients, customers, citizens are doing. Yeah. Like, you know, I always, one of my favourite uh, social science sort of research design thinking-y kind of places, one of the very first projects they did a bazillion years ago was they were trying to get um, airline executives to think differently about airlines and they realised that the executives of this particular airline hadn't flown economy in about 15 years. <laughs> well, I, I suppose, and there's got to be shortcuts to trying to create those experiences like that design, isn't it, of the economy because you're not going to... It's hard for people to get out and have that time to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm actually interested by how much it gets done in private companies. Um, so you It know, does get done? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can think of multiple companies in Australia and overseas who make their senior leadership team spend yeah. a day a month, a day a quarter in a shop front yep. to actually deal yeah, with yeah, the public. Yeah. I mean, you know, when was the last time senior executives in the public service answered the help desk or, in fact, fronted the counter at Centrelink and actually answered the public's questions? So if we were... A, if you were a privately traded company, that is in fact something you might do. Yes. And pretty much every company I can think of in Silicon Valley does some version of that. They put their leaders yeah. in, in close encounters with our customers. Regularly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's now mandated process. In lots of places, yeah. Yeah. So listen, um, what... And this is probably an unfair question, but is, <laughs> is there... As opposed to all the others, yeah. that have been just perfectly reasonable. But is, 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 there a, is there a singular sort of central piece of wisdom where you think, that's what I've learned? Oh, listen, I think it's something I, I knew as an anthropologist anyway, but that's people always matter. It's like, you know, no matter what, matter. people always matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you are building. It doesn't matter how sophisticated the technology is. If it isn't meaningful, it doesn't matter. And that, you know, everything should start with people. I mean, I think my most trenchant critique these days of all the talk about digital transformation, yeah. where's, the, where's the human in that story? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, no, th that's a good point. You know, the, the technology, we're overrun by any number of, you know, software packages or whatever else that are going to do this, that or the other. But you're, you're right. I think the, the person often gets left out. And you can tell that in all kinds of ways, right? Um, I recently tried to install some smart light bulbs. Yeah. Mm. Um, here's the thing about light bulbs. It shouldn't be that complicated. Light bulbs are kind of one of the original, really early technologies. You'd be able to screw them in and turn them on. That should be it, right? It shouldn't be really that complicated. Yeah. When your light bulb comes with a three-page instruction book, you just think, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Someone isn't someone's paying. overthought. Someone's this. really just not done their job here because they weren't thinking about humans. They yeah. were thinking about some kind of engineered solution. And for me, it is this bit that keeps saying, you know, it's good to know the what, but I'm always really interested in why. Yeah. Like what motivate, you know, why are people doing the things they are doing? Why is that what they are up to? How do yeah. you answer that question? Not the what. The data is one thing. The why is the important bit. Yeah. And people don't always pay attention to that. Yeah. Now, listen, we're coming up against time, but I, I'm, I'm intrigued to, to... Yeah, so after all that, what am I doing now? <laughs> well, that's it. it you know, exactly. <laughs> this, this, you know, the, the ANU and the founding of the Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute, 3AI, you know, the, the aim of the institute is to build a new applied science around the management of artificial intelligence, data and technology. And really, you know, every galar in the pet shop, if I could borrow a Paul Keating phrase, is talking artificial intelligence. You know, everywhere you go, it's going to you know, replace jobs, you know, yep. cars are going to be running, yep. things are going to be. Yep. So what are you going to do? And, and again, is it a bit like Intel of where they've said to you, okay, this is a sort of a nice idea or is this, did you design this? Oh, I designed this. Okay, right. So, you know, I am, okay, this is your I, idea. I am, the, I am the galar in the pet shop. Okay, I right. Might, I might also be the pet shop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you, you had an idea and you came back and said, I want to do this idea, ANU, and they said, all right. You kind of. Okay. Um, so, you know, only marginally more complicated than that. But listen, the idea, the idea was, the idea for me was straightforward, which is that for the last 60 years, computers have followed a very particular architecture, what we would call command and control. Yep. Software told computers what to do on our behalf. Yep. We wrote the software, it was relatively straightforward. 
over the last three to five years, artificial intelligence technologies are starting to make it possible to imagine a world in which computing no longer needs us to tell it precisely what to do and when. That, you know, waves of data and algorithms make it possible for computing systems to act without humans explicitly stating what the action should be. You can call that autonomous vehicles, you can call that artificial intelligence, you can call it what you want. The reality is what computing has been isn't going to be what it will be. And so my conversation with both the Vice-Chancellor at the Australian National University and the Dean of Engineering there was to say, listen, this world that's coming, in order to make sense of that, we've got some fundamental questions we need to answer. If computing isn't commanded and controlled anymore, will it be autonomous? And if so, what on earth does that look like? How do we manage it, regulate it, signal it, build it, technically implement it? If it's going to be autonomous, how much control is it going to have and who's going to set that control, i.e. how much agency will there be? Will it get to operate? Uh, Okay, right. Will it get to operate? What are its limits? How's that going to be set? Who's going to set it? Is it conditional? Is it absolute? How will it be monitored, managed, regulated? And if you've got those two problems, how on earth are we going to think about the ball of wax that is safety, security, liability, risk, trust, manageability, explainability, all of those things? I, I get that lovely, you know, that sequence. And so yeah. the other way to think about it, David, because I've been increasingly trying to think about it, how do you have a, a kind of a, a, a good analogy to hang your hat on here? What if artificial intelligence is no more or no less than just the steam engine? Right. And that what we need to be doing is talking about the train and the boats and the machinery, right, that AI kicks off a transformation. It isn't the transformation. It will power a whole lot of things. But, you know, the difference difference between a steam engine that sat at the top of a mine pumping water out and the steam engine that was on a train, they're like completely different things. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're sitting next to a mine, you've got lumber available for fuel, you've got water, you know, it can be as big as you damn well please, doesn't really matter. Yeah. As soon as you get on a train, you've got a whole different set of constraints. Yep. You know, have to think about where's the water coming from, where's the fuel coming from, how do you make propulsion happen, how do you ensure the thing doesn't blow up, what do you do about a railway grade and how do you make time work? And suddenly it looks a whole lot more complicated. Yeah. And AI is the same thing, right? It took us a really long time to get here, building out AI technologies. That's yep. 60 years in the making and, God, it was hard work. Mm. And I totally get wanting to celebrate that because, yeah. wow, it's really pretty amazing where we've gotten to. Yeah. But the reality is it's just the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Yeah. And what does it do to people? In in this autonomy agency assurance and and you put the people there, what does it mean for us? Such a good question, right? So imagine each one of those A's works for us too. So if machinery starts doing a whole lot of work that we're used to doing, what will that mean about how we feel for ourselves? Will we, you know, how will we be autonomous actors? when a whole lot of tasks have been outsourced to machinery? How will we have agency when objects are operating on our behalves and what will that feel like? How will we feel safe? Not just how will the systems be safe? So now the very jobs that were the ones that prestige came from because it was about mastery of enormous bodies of facts are now the jobs that are most yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. And think then about what does that look like, right? So if you have had the last 40 years of imagining that knowledge and prestige and social capital came from an exquisite ability to yes. memorise a great yep. deal of data yep. and know how it works. Yep. And all of that can now be done by a machine. Yeah. And what you in fact need to be good at is interfacing with that data, framing the questions to get the right answers out of the data, managing all the human stuff that happens around that, yep. as well as working out how to know when to ask for help and how to read the help when it comes back, both you know, kind of culturally and technically. Does that start to sound like a different set of skills? Completely. Yeah. It does. Well, a- exciting. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, particularly for but those of us who come out of the sort of more creative realm, you know, it really starts to... Oh, yeah, because suddenly you have to say, okay, so there'll be a, there'll be a moment in time where people who have deep domain expertise are going to have to teach the machinery. Yes. You know, they will be its tutors, right? But there'll also be a point after which the machinery will be better at some of those tasks than humans are because they are capable of a degree of, you know, basically... I mean, the same way that, you know, a production line could move things faster than the human hand could, some of these can move faster than our conceptual capacities can can render. We have spent a long time valuing and validating and valorising a certain set of activities... And, you know, you said, well, those of us in the creative sector, you know we've worn that for a bit of like, you know, we were a bit 
you know, soft skill. Yeah. <laughs> we did all this creative stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out some of those things are actually going to be as important moving forward as the technical stuff. So you probably don't want most people to be data scientists or do data visualisation or build algorithms or be people who are driving AI. But we do need people to understand how that works and how to think about framing a question, how to think about interpretation, how to think about bias, how to think about yeah, what is the entire... Really interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, the entire body of critical thinking, yeah. right? Yeah, so suddenly my liberal arts education looks really yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> well, listen, on that note, um, thanks so much for coming in. I really... Um, it, that, that's just a fest, wonderful conversation and really it seems to me like the beginning of a conversation because I think we're really at this next stage where there's going to be so much to explore, so many conversations to be had. So this won't be the last time you, you come round. Um, yeah, well, because, you know, I, I, it, it, we've got to live in this space. I think the conversation around this is really um, central to people understanding and, and getting rid too. of the fear, getting rid of the worry, getting rid of the... And taking these concepts and trying to turn them into something that means something to people. Because to me, I often get freaked out. You know, I sort of look at these things and think, oh, God, what's all this mean? And I think you make a great point that really let's, let's strip the complexity out of it. Let's put the person in the middle of it and let's understand it at a really sort of human level. So I think that's the challenge for all of us. So... Thanks very much for coming into the studio today and thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again and I'm sure you'll agree that was a wonderful conversation. It delivered. So thank you very much. I'll be back at the same time next week but for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.